This week on Making Contact. Making, making contact. Making, 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 making contact. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. All schools closing in a growing number of states. Houses of worship suspending services. Landmarks, theme parks, sporting events and concerts shutting down. The chaos at grocery stores. Lines stretching out the door. Shelves cleared out. The disturbing scene caught on tape a black man pinned to the ground, later dying after a white officer kneeled on his neck. The man heard saying, I can't breathe. Twenty twenty was unprecedented in many respects. The COVID nineteen pandemic, a reckoning with policing in the U.S., and a contentious presidential election. If we knew before last year that major events trigger spikes in gun purchases, it should be no surprise that twenty twenty and even the first few months of twenty twenty one are shaping up to be some of the biggest years ever for firearms purchases. My name is Lawrence Taylor, aka DJ Styles. And I just became a gun owner last year for the first time. Lawrence is a California school teacher and a DJ. When we went into lockdown on coronavirus, I feared the worst. I just thought we were gonna have like food droughts and water rations and putting gas in, in, in plastic bags. And you know, I just, I feared the worst. And so, Part of me, like, I really went into prepper mode and started stacking up, like, all of my food rations and stuff like that. If you have all the food and other people didn't prepare, you become a target. You need to protect yourself. And, I mean, amongst all the other things. So it was something that me clicked with, I need to get a firearm at this point. Lawrence was not alone. According to our estimates, across the country, more than 22.7 million guns were ordered last year. And in California, over 1.3 million guns were ordered. But the sales estimates don't tell you who bought those guns or why first-time buyers like Lawrence were motivated to make that purchase. Mark Oliva is the public affairs director for the National Shooting Sports Foundation, the Firearms Industry Trade Association. Partway through the year last year, we, we wanted to be able to get a handle on who was buying these guns. Um, so we put out a survey to our retailers to find out, you know, who exactly is buying these guns. Because there's nowhere that you can go for a national registry to be able to see that Mark didn't own a gun yesterday, but today he does. So we have to ask the retailers, what do you see in your stores? And what they told us is that 40% of the people who were buying guns last year were buying a gun for the very first time. And that is a tectonic shift. And uh, in the conversation of who's buying firearms today. We at Making Contact conducted our own small survey to get a better sense of not just who's buying guns, but what they do with it once they get it. That's how we connected with Lawrence Taylor. He answered our survey and talked about training. So I actually started out uh, going to the gun range with a group of guys I know. And then there is a black shooting group up above Sacramento that we're a part of. And we go up there once a month or every two months. And they're actually in that group are some uh, licensed NRA instructors. Mark Oliva. Prior to 2020, people wanted to kind of put gun owners into a box. 
and say, well, gun owners are, you know, old male and pale. People who might look a lot like me. You know, I'm a 47-year-old white guy living in the suburbs of D.C. But I don't know that you can apply that that uh, adage to today's gun buyer. They're certainly much younger. They're much more diverse. And they're more reflective of who we are as an American society. Uh, and I think it's a, I think it's a realization among uh, among some of the the people in these demographic groups that the Second Amendment applies to everybody. It is not a white right. It is not a black right. It is it is a right of every citizen at their birth. Beyond race, sex, and age, we also wanted to know how gun owners identify politically. Some first-time buyers like Lawrence had once been strongly opposed to guns, let alone owning one. In our sample, a little less than half of survey respondents identified as Democrat. 35% were independent, and 2% were Republican. But we saw people name a broad range of political identifiers. One gun group who helped to promote the survey among their members is called LA Progressive Shooters. Tom Wynn started the group last year. It's almost like when you're a person of a liberal background and belief system, but you also like guns and you enjoy guns, it's almost like a dirty secret, right? Like you don't, you don't talk about it around your liberal-minded friends because they're going to think, what are you, crazy, right? There's that certain stigma about gun owners. You know, we, we, we tend to think about very, you know, it's very simplicity, right? There's the stereotype of what a gun owner is. A typical gun owner, from a liberal point of view, are very conservative-minded folks who are overly paranoid and they glamorize guns and violence. Um, that's the stereotype of a gun owner. And I'm not that stereotype. L.A. Progressive Shooters first caught my attention because I'd been following another one of Tom's arts and culture accounts, Enclave L.A. He's been a software engineer, surf instructor, and developed a grassroots marketing company for clients like the Hollywood Bowl and the L.A. Philharmonic. When shelter-in-place orders hit, Tom's business came to a halt as well. A few industries, however, took off. My name is Geneva Solomon. I am co-owner of Redstone Farms in Burbank, California. There has been a huge difference in gun sales um, and demographic of those patronizing our store. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with not just our business model, but things that were going on around the country. We've seen probably a 100% increase in business um, once the it was the pandemic that started it, but then there were other things that began to happen after the pandemic that kept gun sales up. Mm -hmm. And what were those other things? So the civil unrest across the country, um, we started to see violence within the black community. Um, and I think what happened in 2020 is those people who have grown up thinking that guns were bad and bad, really started to learn and understand the history of firearms and within the black community and understanding that it may have been by design that we have been conditioned not to want to touch a firearm or learn about it responsibly. And so it was the shift of the pandemic and people being afraid of um, you know, people coming into their homes to steal their resources. And then it went to, wait a minute, I'm starting to see people within my own communities trying to rely on our police department to protect me, but they're not really protecting me. And if I dial 911, will I somehow end up being the suspect that turns into the victim, but I'm just calling 911 
because I'm really truly afraid for my life. And so you have to understand the strains of the relationship between, well, if I can't really rely on 911 to protect me, then what else do I have? Simply viewing this guide will not make you a safe gun owner. Safety comes only from carefully following all applicable rules and laws. You're responsible for knowing the rules of gun safety. You're responsible for knowing the right way to store a handgun. And you're responsible for always handling your gun safely, legally, and responsibly. The process for getting a gun differs by state. I went through the motions this year to get a better understanding of what's involved. And then did you want to laminate the certificate for $2? Uh, sure. Basically, you watch the California DOJ video, download the written study guide, slap down some cash at a local sporting goods store or firing range, and take a multiple choice quiz. This is the test. You're going to go ahead, read this sign here, fill in the bubbles for your answers. Questions are on the inside. Okay. There you go. And good luck. Thank you. After that, you're good to go to pick out a California approved firearm. Some people think the process is too easy, while others believe it's quite rigorous. L.A. Progressive Shooters founder, Tom Wynn. You just read the guide and you can, okay, I'll tell you what, I didn't even study, Monica. I just went in based on my 15-year-old knowledge of guns and I passed it. I missed one question. So if you study it, knowing nothing about guns, if you study it, you can pass the test, uh, no question. It doesn't even mean that you know how to safely operate a gun. You just read about it. Basically, you pass the test saying that you, you uh, were pretty good at reading about it, right? And memorizing uh, the, the answers to the questions. Okay, that in no way makes you qualified to safely and responsibly own and operate a gun. Every experience is unique and dependent on the kind of service a business offers. Geneva Solomon talks about why she bought her first gun. One, I was a victim of domestic violence, so that was what prompted me to go purchase a firearm. So I was already at a fragile state, and I was married, and I had a small child, and I walk into a gun store, nothing but men. I love men, you know, but it was nothing but men. And I had a ton of questions because I knew nothing about the process. I knew I couldn't just walk in a gun store, put down some money and walk out, but I wanted to educate myself, and, and it was like, they were jerks. The guys were jerks. He would walk away, take 45 minutes, come back. Um, and I was like, so, you know, this gun is 600 bucks. Can you tell me more about it? He's like, just pick it up and fill it and let me know if you want to buy it. And it just felt horrible. And then I asked him, hey, do you know of any instructors in the area that I could, you know, I was making good money. I didn't care what it cost. Any instructors in the area that I can um, pay to for some training? And they flat out told me no, they didn't. I, I kind of call BS on that, um, but I still walked out. I'm resilient. I'm a fighter, and I found someone, and I learned to use that firearm. How are we doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Not, not bad. Training bay three. With yeah. Tom. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you are meeting up with somebody. Yes, I am. In March, I met up with Tom and other members of the LA Progressive Shooters at a firing range in San Bernardino, California. Hey, Tom. Good to meet you in person. They had an assortment of guns. Handguns, shotguns, automatic rifles operated by new and experienced shooters. 
All right, so we're going to do rifle shooting. One, two, three. It looks like we have enough room for up to three shooters. Okay. Um, Tom started the group with a couple of friends in June of 2020, smack dab in the middle of the lockdown and at the height of Black Lives Matter protests across the country. His ex-girlfriend, Vanna, was about to go on a road trip by herself, and Tom was concerned for her safety. She became his first unofficial firearm student. So yeah, so it's sighted in, the way it's sighted in. You gotta aim below the clay. Yeah, so... So the next thing I did was, I decided, you know what, I'm just gonna post a, a video of me shooting guns and with Vanna shooting guns. You know, no caption, no comment, and just, just kind of test the waters and see how people react. And I was fully expected to get a lot of pushback to maybe, you know, my followers saying, what is going on with Tom, right? What is this, right? What is he doing with a gun? And surprisingly, the first comment I got was a direct message from an acquaintance of mine. He's in one of my favorite uh, LA bands. One of the most gentle souls I know in LA. And he messaged me, he goes, Tom, you shoot guns? Like, I, you know, and he was totally like, taken aback. Like of all the people he thought would, would be into guns, I was the last person, right, that he would have thought of. And he felt comfortable in confiding in me, hey, you know what, I actually bought a gun. I don't know how to use it. I don't know how to shoot it. But with the unrest and pandemic, you know, my wife and I, we just bought a new house. I just want to feel like I can defend ourselves. So I bought this gun. I don't know how to use it. Will you show me how to use it? And I was like, absolutely, absolutely, I'll teach you, right? And so I took him to the range and taught him how to use the gun. And word spread through our L.A. music community among our friends. And I'm not kidding you, Monica. The next two or three folks that approached me were from, from other L.A. bands or from the music community who wanted to learn how to shoot guns. Among the gun owners who answered our survey, 90% said they had sought out some firearms training or support after buying a gun. One disturbing change last year is that gun homicides increased in major cities across the country. According to data from the California Department of Public Health, the state also saw an increase in gun homicides. From the previous five years, gun homicides last year increased by over 25 percent in California. Shortly after two mass shootings in Georgia and Colorado in March of this year, Democratic Senator John Ossoff asks Dr. Selwyn Rogers, Trauma Center Director at the University of Chicago Medicine to speak about the increase in violence. Two weeks, two massacres. And there's also a broader increase in violence across our society over the last year in particular. With your experience, Dr. Rogers, could you reflect please on what is driving this broader increase in violence? And what do you assess to be the causes of our nearly uniquely American problem of repeated massacres and spree shootings? In my opinion, the almost 50% increase that we've seen in Chicago and so many cities across this country of shootings is related to the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact it's had socially and economically on so many distressed communities. And in many ways, gun violence, intentional gun violence, is a symptom of a larger problem in our society. The ready availability of guns puts people at risk, but unfortunately, disproportionately, those communities that are at risk are communities of color. 
and we aren't really addressing the upstream factors that lead to this unfortunate, as Senator Booker said, slaughter, and the slaughter of Americans, of mostly black and brown Americans in this country, has gone on for decades. Tackling that problem is really what we should be focusing on. I think, unfortunately, we don't address the root causes of gun violence, and we see this time and time again. We'll have another hearing in another year or another decade if we don't do some action now to address the problem fundamentally. Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is an historian and the author of Loaded, a disarming history of the Second Amendment. In Loaded, she argues that understanding the purpose of the Second Amendment is key to understanding the gun culture of the United States. Part of that is also tied to the business of gun production. It was actually the first U.S. corporation. Alexander Hamilton commissioned the Springfield Armory in uh, Massachusetts during the Revolutionary War as a corporation. It is still the only industry that did not go offshore. The United States is the largest manufacturer of small weapons, uh, supplies 45% of the small weapons in the world. So it's a thriving industry. The corporate interest has a lot to do with making guns very available and and making tons of money. As Dr. Dunbar-Ortiz writes in her book, the Second Amendment is a simple statement. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And the purpose of it, she says, was laid out in various documents throughout history. In the uh, Northwest Ordinance, which became a part of the Constitution of how to take Indian land, that is all they talked about, is how to defeat the Native people and take their land. So what they adopted with the Second Amendment were the Indian militias that existed. Like I say, they weren't written into laws as nothing was, you know, and there was no constitution under the British. These were locally uh, mandated all over the colonies. They had trainers straight out of the British wars against Turkey, you know, where they were annihilating villages. And they had them in in Maine as well. They brought them with them. The pilgrims brought with them the mercenary who would be in charge of organizing the militias to go kill the Indians. So this is 150 years of doing this. So they put it in the Second Amendment. That's what they refer to. And I interpret the well-regulated meaning They're not highwaymen, you know, robbers. They're not Robin Hoods. They're organized. They're very organized. They're self-organized, though, not by the government. That's what settler colonialism is, is self-organization. a professional firearms trainer now, but his relationship to guns early in life was very different. And in high school, this is in the late 80s, uh, I, I noticed my dad kept a small gun in his bedroom. So me being this scrawny kid that was always getting bullied, 
you know, guess what I did? Well, I started taking my dad's gun to school. I thought that, you know, it would make me feel like a badass. That the kids would respect me more knowing that I had a gun. And one night when my parents weren't home, I decided to invite all the buddies over, you know, to show off, right? Typical teenage bravado. Hey, guys, come on over. You know, gather around. Let me show you my dad's gun. And I went to load it, and boom, the gun went off. I didn't even squeeze a trigger. And to this day, I don't know how I didn't shoot my friend standing right in front of the muzzle, Monica. It was miraculous that I didn't hurt anyone, right? I could have shot somebody, right? So that was my first experience with a real gun. It shows you how irresponsible my father was as a gun owner, that he himself didn't even know the gun was defective because he's never even shot it himself, right? And that how, is, how easy it is for his child to access his gun without him knowing about it. He stored it in a file cabinet that I could easily pick the lock with a paperclip. And then fast forward to age 21, the year after that, I got kicked out of college and so, you know, for my strict immigrant father who sacrificed so much to see his oldest son go to college, you know, he wasn't too happy about that. So, you know, he kicked me out of the house thinking, you know, yeah, you're, you're worthless. Get out of my house. So at age 21, Monica, I was thinking, yeah, I guess my future is done. But what I could do at, at age 21 was buy my first handgun. So at age 21, I bought my first handgun with the intention of committing suicide. Dr. Doreen Marshall is the Vice President for Mission Engagement at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We talk about firearms and safe storage as being such a key component of suicide prevention because if people are storing their firearms safely and, you know, locked and unloaded, you know, um, inaccessible, particularly to a person in crisis, that can save a life. Um, and a lot of people think, well, isn't someone just going to find another method if I prevent a primary method that they've chosen? And the research shows us that most people won't switch methods. So if you can find a way to kind of um, put what we call time and space between a person and their chosen method for suicide, you can really help save a life. Ultimately, that time and space is what saved Tom. Whatever crisis or despair someone is going through, it's a transitory, momentary feeling at that point in their life. And so by reaching for a firearm, unfortunately, what they've reached for is a tool that is usually pretty lethal. So you don't get a chance to get over that despair or get through that moment, right? A lot of folks, it's normal for you to go through despair, to go through depression, to have a moment. And you just want that feeling to stop. So fortunately, in my case, um, I had time to contemplate my decision and, I, and, and the feeling of despair passed. One bit of cautiously encouraging news from 2020 is that the overall number of suicides and suicides by firearm decreased both nationally and in California. We know the overall number went down. I think as we dig into the data and look at whether it's age or race, ethnicity, that the numbers went up. I mean, I'd be speculating, but I will say, you know, what's consistent is that when we've seen other times in history where there's been what I think of as like large scale community level um, events, so whether it's a war or, or those, we tend to see suicide rates do go down in the immediate. 
Um, because what tends to happen for you know the human experience, I think, is that people tend to see themselves as in things together. And so when we're all impacted by something, we have a really clear reason for why things are not good. Um, and this last year, it's been the pandemic has been a big reason for people about why things are not good. But then I think as things start to improve, you still have a number of folks who are saying, yeah, things are getting better, but they're not getting better for me. And so making sure that we continue our prevention efforts as we move out of this kind of intense pandemic phase is going to be ever more important because we don't want to see these rates go back up. That's what Dr. Marshall's group is doing. The American Foundation for Suicide is working to reduce the annual rate of suicide by 20 percent. She shared a staggering figure that's relevant to gun owners. Two-thirds of all gun deaths are gun suicides. We knew that if we didn't do something in the area of firearms, it would be very hard to get a reduction. Michael Sodini's aim is to connect the firearms community with people who work in mental health and suicide prevention. I started Walk to Talk America in 2018 after a chance meeting with a complete stranger uh, that asked the question, if the firearms industry blames the mental health community or, or says mass shootings are the, a product of mental health, then how does the firearm industry work with mental health? You think the two would work together? And that question really changed my life because before then I owned a firearms importer. Um, and in 2009, we had lost the president of our company to suicide by firearm. Michael says that some firearm owners worry about seeking help, even if they're experiencing a mental health crisis. Even talking to counselors is talked about in one big sweeping boogeyman type experience. Like, oh, they're going to ask you about your guns. And then when you say you have them, then they're going to, you know, they're going to be on edge. Well, um, that's one of the reasons why we do like free and anonymous mental health screenings. We also bring mental health clinicians into what we call a, it's almost a firearms guns 101 class. Um, it's a cultural competence class, which we give CEU credits for people that complete it. Dr. Doreen Marshall. You can easily gain trust and you can lose it just as quickly. So if you're trying to work with someone around their suicide risk and owning a firearm and you're using incorrect terms or you're showing that you clearly do not understand what owning a firearm is like, you can lose them, right? Or they, they may not trust that you're somebody they can really talk about this challenge with. So I think the more familiar you can get with the terminology, um, the concerns of gun owners, those sorts of things, it does empower you more as a clinician to have these conversations openly and to have them on an ongoing basis. Tom Wynn. I started telling these stories to my students as kind of a lesson for them. All the bad connotations they may have about guns are true, right? I've, I've done those things. I negligently fired a firearm and almost hurt somebody. I took it to school, right? As a young uh, youth, I witnessed uh, gun violence. I've, I've uh, contemplated suicide with a gun. So, you know, all those things associated with guns, I've experienced those things. And it's, it's because of those, ex those early experience with guns is why as an instructor today, I'm so passionate about empowering folks with the knowledge they need so that they don't have to go through what I did, right? I didn't have a good support system around guns. I didn't have someone telling me right from wrong around guns, 
I don't want that for my students. I want them to be empowered with all the information they need to make the best decision for themselves when it comes to owning and operating a gun. And that may mean making the choice to forego a gun purchase altogether. If you or a loved one is experiencing a mental health crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. Or text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741741. This program was produced as part of a project of the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism Data Fellowship. It was researched, written, and produced by Monica Lopez. Special thanks to Andrew Tran, Danielle Fox, Susan Racho, Henry Lopez, Dr. Marisela Marquez, Anita Johnson, and our community outreach coordinator, Sandina Robbins. The Making Contact team is Sonia Green, Anita Johnson, Salima Hamarani, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Monica Lopez, reporting from Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.